You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So it's, it's great to see all of you here this morning, and some of you are our guests. I got to meet some of you coming through the doors, but welcome. My name is Jay, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we've been in a study on the book of Genesis together, and in preparing for that, I was really reminded of what this whole week has been like for me. I turned 50 on Tuesday and had a break. <laughs> Thank you. You're too kind. And some of you are thinking, hey, you look 60 or 70. Is it really? It's 50. So since we're talking age, that's me as a baby. Isn't that cute? And again, some of you are saying, what happened? Yeah, you used to be cute. You're still going like this. Right, there you go. I still have the same gestures. Looks. Oh, it's Pastor Jay preaching again. Look at that. Unbelievable. We will not put this one on the website, okay? So um, that being said... This birthday was just such a fantastic birthday, and it all goes back to my wife, Jamie, really. Um, I've mentioned to you before that birthdays, in in particular, are events in our family. Um, My wife just goes all out, decorates, makes everyone feel special. There's always a theme. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Well, she took it to a whole new level, this go-around, and it started with um, really the very beginning of my day. I start my Tuesdays with preaching team in the morning, and then from there we come back here to Grace, and we have our staff meeting, and Jamie, unbeknownst to me, went ahead of me to staff meeting and had bought all this food and prepared all this food, had decorated the room, had collaborated with Dina to our um, women's ministry office manager, do-everything person here, and, you know, had pulled that off, and it was just, it was fun, celebrate with staff who really like my family, and do that, but my wife had also snuck into my office, and she had decorated my office, there were balloons everywhere, and it was just, it was epic, it was amazing, and it was just the warm-up for what was coming later, because what happened later took me back to something that had happened years ago, it was like a deja vu experience, years ago, when Jamie was my high school girlfriend, and we were dating one another, she threw a surprise 18th birthday for me, and this is a picture from that. I know I haven't aged a bit, thank you. I appreciate that. Jamie certainly hasn't. She looks just about the same. But um, all that being said, my wife, my girlfriend then at the time, had somehow tricked me, convinced me to come over to her house when she and her family were going to be gone. So I thought I was coming over to this empty house and walked in and um, the lights came on and here's all these people, all my friends um, for my 18th birthday, which was epic. Well, this Tuesday night, once again, My wife um, threw a surprise birthday party for me, and I walked in, and the house was dark, and once again, I was completely clueless, had no idea this was going to happen. The lights went on, and and here was this surprise birthday party, and that was some of the food that we got to eat, which was outstanding. But that being said, it was a deja vu moment. I felt like I was 18 again. I mean, no idea it was coming. Fabulous birthday party. I, I will always remember this one for sure, but it was just wonderful. You ever had a deja vu experience like that? Something happens in your life and you go, oh, that is so cool. I remember what this is like. But sometimes we have other kinds of deja vu experiences, don't we? I mean, sometimes we have some that are not so welcome. Like we have this conflict with someone in our family that we've had before and here we go again. 
or we're in this situation that we'd rather not be in and gosh, it feels like I've been here before. We have this painful circumstance that comes our way and it takes us right back to something that happened just as painful in the past. We've probably all had those kinds of experiences and as we come to Genesis 20 today, this is like a deja vu experience all over again. Abraham is going to make some choices here that take us right back to Genesis 12, which we've already been through. And it's unbelievable. It's like a bad movie repeating itself again that you don't want to see, but here it plays again. And that's the vibe of what's going on in this passage. So there's some things I want us to watch for as we begin to read through this passage together. Here's the first. Is there something here or some things here that can help us avoid those negative deja vu-like experiences that sometimes come our way because of our choices, because of the things we choose to do or not do? And then secondly, what does this tell us about God? Because really all these stories are telling us about this God, what he's like, what his promises are, what, what he does, how he acts. So I want you to watch for those things as we read through this passage. So if you have a Bible and you're old school, have a hardcover Bible like me, go ahead and open that up to Genesis 20. Take out your phone or tablet if they're not already out. Some of you already have them out. Turn to Genesis 20. Quit texting your friends. God bless you. And I will put it up on the screen here, on the screens behind me, and I'll read it to you, and we'll walk through this together. So here we go. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, here we go, she's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord... Will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And did she not also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver, and this is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. 
You are completely vindicated. And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So let's begin to work our way through this bad movie that is running again. Just like Genesis 12, if you'll remember back with me, for those of you who were here when we walked through that together, Abraham experiences a famine, his whole family does, in the land where God told them to go, so they choose to make the dangerous decision to go down to Egypt. And because Abraham wants to save his own skin, he says, hey, Sarah, be sure and tell the Pharaoh that, that you're my sister and not my wife. Because he'll kill me otherwise. And that's exactly what happens. Abraham lies. He puts Sarah in an incredibly difficult, dangerous place. The promise of God is endangered. God has to step in and intervene. And Pharaoh rightfully responds to that and kicks Abraham out of the land because Abraham has lied to him. And now we come to this. Why does Abraham do this? Again. Now we can make some guesses here. I mean, could it be that when he came out of Egypt, he was enriched? Remember, Pharaoh gave him all this livestock and that was a measure of wealth back then, so that kind of worked out okay. God protected Sarah. It worked out once. Maybe it'll work out again. Maybe, but I don't think so. The text actually gives us a hint in how Abraham responds to Abimelech when Abimelech confronts him and says, why did you do this? It tells us he was afraid. And this ties right in to last week. Remember Lot? Remember how many decisions he made out of fear and how those choices, those decisions worked out for him? When we make choices driven by fear, how often does it not work out well for us? Often. Fear-based decisions are not usually good decisions. And we know that was at least in play here with Abraham. And so God now comes to Abimelech in a dream. You ever remember your dreams? Some of you do. I don't. I think God has given me the gift of sleep. And so I have a job to do, and when it's time to do the job, I do it. And I wake up the next morning, I don't remember a thing. My wife, by contrast, remembers all her dreams. And we talk about them often because she remembers them in great detail. I don't. I have the gift of sleep. I'm a shallow person, maybe all the above. I don't know. But I don't remember nothing when I wake up in the morning, ever. In fact, earlier this week when we were starting one of our runs, I said, Jamie, I had this really vivid dream last night. And it was vivid at the time. And she said, okay, tell me about it. And I went, I don't remember. That's just me. But if I had a dream like this, I would remember it. Because this is the God of the universe who's speaking. And he comes to Abimelech and he confronts him and what we have to keep in mind here is that Abimelech more than likely is not a Yahweh worshiper. He does not know this God. He is polytheistic. He worships many gods. He's a pagan. And so to cover his bases, when God comes to him, he addresses him as Lord. And this is the word in the original language that is Adonai. And this is a gesture, a title of respect. You would say this possibly to a king or one in authority, and you would say it to a, a god. He doesn't know which god he's dealing with here, so to cover his bases, he uses this, this term of respect. And he says, I've done nothing wrong. 
This is very similar to our idiom of my hands are clean. In fact, how often do we talk like this, right? I, we wave our hands non-verbally to say, I had nothing to do with this. Or That's exactly what he's trying to communicate here. But God kind of sets him straight and says, hey, pal, let's give credit where credit's due. Who kept you from sinning? I did. You're not as innocent as you think you are. I kept you from sinning against me. And we know as we read in the story together that something is happening to keep Abimelech and the, the women in the royal household, all of them, from being able to conceive. We don't know if they had some kind of disease or what was going on here, but what we do know is that Abimelech knew that he was dealing with the one true God, and when God said this, what he was saying was absolutely true. Abimelech wasn't as innocent as he thought he was. God was the one who was intervening here because God takes sin seriously. And then he goes on to say, these amazing words. Abraham's a prophet. Friends, this is the first time in Scripture someone is designated to be a prophet. So what's that about? Well, in no small part, God is saying, this is my man. Abraham's my guy. You better listen to him. But this goes even deeper than that. A prophet was someone who connected with God and spoke for God. In fact, as we jump to the New Testament, as we fast forward there, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, as it's talking about spiritual gifts, the way the Holy Spirit manifests himself in our lives, the gift that's being talked about specifically there is the gift of prophecy. And Paul basically goes on to say, I wish you could all prophesy because what that means is speaking God's word with transforming power. And that's who Abraham is. And now Abraham, ironically, is going to be the one to intercede and pray for Abimelech, even though he's the one who's wronged Abimelech and the nation. But we're going to see more irony as we continue on here. So Abimelech and his officials are afraid. Yeah, wise move. I would be too, and so would you if God appeared to you in a dream and said what he said to Abimelech, to you or to me. But there's even more going on here because we see this pattern happen in the Old Testament, not just with people like Abimelech's people, but even with God's people, the Jews and the Israelites, there's this principle, this reality that goes like this. As the king goes, so do the people. If the king obeys and trusts, then the people will too. But if the king rebels, the people often will rebel too. And Abimelech wisely understands this is more than just about him. His entire nation is now being threatened by what's going on here, and they are rightfully afraid. And this is where we begin to see a big contrast between Pharaoh in Genesis 12 and how he responded to Abraham's deception and Abimelech in this chapter and how he responds to Abraham's deception. Look at the nature of these questions here, and now think back with me to Genesis 12. When Pharaoh found out that Abraham had lied to him and confronted him. What happened from there? He read him the riot act and he threw him out of his country. He literally sent a delegation with Abraham to make sure not that he had a royal escort, but that he got out of the country and he never came back. And how does Abimelech respond here? You can feel the vibe in these questions. They are personal. They are relational. He has been personally wronged. And yes, he's confronting Abraham, but he really does want an explanation. How could you do this to us? How could you do this to me? 
And look how Abraham responds. And now we're gonna begin to see this dichotomy between Abraham and Abimelech. One is going to be the righteous one and one not so much. And what Abimelech here is profoundly righteous. He asks for reasonably an explanation rather than just throwing him out of the country like Pharaoh did. And what does Abraham do here? Well, the meta message of what he's saying here is really a shot at Abimelech and his country and his people. Because what's he saying here? Didn't think I could trust you. Didn't think you were a just people or a trustworthy people. I didn't know what you were gonna do to me. No fear of God means this was a place of injustice. This was a place of questionable morals. This was a place of people I'm not sure I can trust. That's not a sentence out of how to win friends and influence people, right? Not scoring points with that. And then what does he go on to do? Now he's really squirming. Does he say, you know what? You're right, I lied to you. I was wrong, I apologize. No, he tries to justify himself. This is a technicality, folks. She's his wife. And it's a little weird for us that she's his half-sister and that was true. Is he telling the whole truth? Well, not at all. In fact, he's not even telling the relevant truth. He is trying to squirm out of this. And we see this. Consider this. This is something that our pastor Bob uses as he's talking with folks about conflict and working through conflict with people. And it's a very predictable pattern that happens when someone confronts us And instead of taking responsibility and apologizing, we begin to do anything but. It usually starts out with denial. Well, I didn't do anything wrong, and we get some of that here with Abraham. Or we diminish it. Well, it's not that bad. Again, we're getting a vibe of that here. We deflect it. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Kind of get some of that here too. We defend ourselves. I had no choice. And that's basically what Abraham's saying here is I didn't know if I could trust you guys. And then finally it progresses to denigration, which is where instead of flight, now it's time to fight. And you actually disparage the other person, you attack them, you hypocrite, you do it too. There's a progression that happens here. You ever respond this way when someone confronts you? Because there are times I do. In my brokenness that I sometimes default back to, I don't have to respond like this, but I go back to it at times. When someone's putting a finger on my insecurities or I'm beginning to squirm instead of take responsibility, this is how it comes out at times. And yet in light of this, how does Abimelech respond? And understand he's never gotten an apology, at least not yet. So what does he do? He gives him sheep and cattle and male and female slaves, returns Sarah to him. This is profoundly righteous. Does Abraham deserve any of this? Uh, no. And yet, what is he doing? He's blessing him. And then if that wasn't enough, remember, what did Pharaoh say? Get out of my land. And what does Abimelech say? Live wherever you want. Stay here. Seriously? Who's the righteous one here? And then he goes on to speak directly to Sarah And I wonder if there's a little sarcasm in this. We don't know. We don't know the tone, but it's interesting. He says, not give your husband, but give your brother, right? I give your brother. I think think there's a little sarcasm. Okay, give your brother a thousand shekels of silver. That's a lot of money back then. 
way, way over the top in terms of making some kind of restitution. But again, basically what Abraham is, excuse me, what Abimelech is saying here is, hey, let's settle this out of court. Let me show honor to you in front of everybody who you just wronged. And that's exactly what's happening here. Abimelech is literally elevating the reputation and the honor of Abraham in front of these very people who he just wronged. And once again, who here is behaving like the righteous one and who's not? I mean, it's remarkable. And then Abraham prays for Abimelech and the household and they're healed. Remember the reality we looked at last week? The power of prayer? Think forward with me to the New Testament, the verses like James 5 that say the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Yeah, on display once again right here. Even though Abraham has not been behaving righteously in this passage, Scripture declares he was a righteous man. And so this is pretty remarkable. So who's the hero of the story? Abimelech? Abraham? God. The hero in all these stories is always God. Because God is going to guide and guard and fulfill his promises. And that's exactly what we see happening here. God is the one who protects Sarah and Abraham, who put her once again in harm's way. God is the one who intervenes. He's the one who stops Abimelech. And if that wasn't enough, he elevates and enriches Abraham despite these broken choices that he's, he's made. Let's go here for a minute. What would have happened if God would not have intervened? Well, if you think back with me to the last couple weeks, in the passage that Gary was in, he helped us see that when those angels came to Abraham and Sarah and said, you know this promise that you keep being given and that you've waited these decades for? Yeah, it's happening. This time next year, you'll hold a baby in your arms. There's a timeline now. It's not just a promise. It's gonna be a reality. So in the wake of this, when Sarah gets pregnant, if you read on to the next verses here in this passage, if God wouldn't have intervened, who's baby would Isaac have been? Would have been in question, would it have not? Once again, Abraham is endangering the promise of God and God steps in and intervenes and says, yeah, no, this is gonna happen. And he protects Abraham and Sarah. But now Abraham has gotten himself in a pickle by his own broken choices. Which surfaces this next reality. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. And let's spend a little time on this and begin to work this through. Sin's kind of a churchy word. What is sin? What comes to mind when you think about sin? Well, oftentimes, it gets reduced to actions, right? It's what we don't do that we should do, or... It's what we do that we shouldn't have done. It's omission, it's commission, but it's so much more than that. Our brokenness is something that permeates and pervades our motives, our thoughts, our values, our intentions. It's a bent that we have that apart from Christ doesn't mean there isn't any good in us, but we have a bent towards selfishness and brokenness and left to our own, that's what we'll choose over and over again. And the reality is that all of us are hardwired to worship something or someone. We do it all the time. 
Something gets your loyalty, your affections, your resources, your time, your love, usually several things. Yet there is a place in our life where that is only reserved for God. We've been created by God to know God, to love God, and to worship God, and to worship Him and Him alone. But instead what we do is we will take good things, you fill in the blank of any good thing, and we'll elevate it to be the ultimate thing. That is our, that is our bent. John Calvin, the great church father, said, the human heart is an idol-making factory, and that's what we're talking about here, is idolatry. Taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing and it runs right through the middle of all of us apart from Jesus Christ. One of the amazing gifts, if the process of my birthday wasn't enough, was a gift that my wife very intentionally created for me and then gave to me. She asked some folks to just write some things they see about me that encourage them or bless them, and then she captured all these things in a book and married images, uh, pictures rather, of of the people either when they were with me or memories that tie into what they wrote about. And I've got this big book that I'll have the rest of my life. And my primary love language is encouraging words, so she very deliberately and intentionally hit the bullseye with that. And there's a picture in that book that I'm gonna share with you because it really was a defining moment in my life. This is going back into the archives a lot of years ago. And this is a picture of the first pastoral staff retreat I went on at my old church at Village. And I don't know if you can see it. Um, for some of you, it may be hard to see, but Jamie and I are on the left side of the picture. I'm in the red sweater. And I'm acting like a middle school pastor, giving you know, the rabbit ears to our college pastor. Grow up, Jay. But in that season, Jamie was also on staff. She was our girls director. And she um, worked with our staff women and worked with the girls in both our ministries. All that to say, when we would go on these retreats, they would always bring in someone to speak to us to motivate us, to encourage us, to bless us, and they'd bring in some pretty heavy hitter speakers. And they brought in this one guy who was well known, especially for his ability to articulate and clarify the truth. And he came in and he was talking and it was so good. And he said something I've never forgotten. In fact, it was a defining moment in my life when he said it and when it sunk into my heart. But he said this, do you know what the problem with your blind spots is? You can't see them. And some of you might go, well, no, duh. That's why they're called blind spots, right? What's so profound about that? Here's what's profound. Everybody has them. Everybody. Insecurities. Sin areas. Selfishness. Stuff that we gravitate to. Things that we think. Or we say or we do that we wish no one else knew about us. And then he pointed out the reality that we are designed to grow in community and in relationship together. We discover God together. And so he said, go out and find someone who will speak into these areas of your life. So I did. And there was a guy in our church who I respected, who seemed to be a safe person. He was a life stage ahead of me in terms of being married and um, with his kids, and I knew there were certainly things I could learn parenting and marriage-wise from him, but I just rolled the dice, made myself a little vulnerable, and said, I know you don't know me very well, but I would really like you to hold me accountable to some things in my life and to just help me grow. This is called discipleship, by the way. And he agreed. 
This week I met with this man once again and we've been meeting for 27 years. He has had this place in my life. That picture is 27 years old. Now, the point isn't to find someone and then stay with them for three decades. But here is the point. Who is it in your life who you have willingly given the license to to ask you about the blind spots of your heart? Your spouse, if that applies to you? A family member? A friend? Someone like this guy who is a disciple or a mentor? You see, God takes sin seriously, and we should too. He goes to great lengths to keep Abimelech from sinning against him and against Abraham and Sarah. But there's another piece to this. And again, we don't know the answer to this. But as we enter the story here, it makes me wonder, did anyone have license in Abraham's life to say, Abraham, what are you thinking? And the answer is, we don't know. But this is what we do know. He did the same thing in Genesis 20 that he did in Genesis 12. His sin repeated itself. Now, there are some people who say that's proof of generational sin, that there can be a sin that tracks its way and makes its way through generations. I don't know where I'm at with that. But this is indisputable. There are certainly patterns of sin that you can begin to see to play out in generations. We see it here in Genesis 26. Isaac, who's not even born yet, will do the exact same thing that Abraham does here. He will lie about Rebekah being his sister. And God will have to get involved once again there. Now, Isaac isn't even born yet, but assumably, he heard the stories about what dad did and thought, Well, maybe it'll work for me. We fast forward there to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name in part means deceiver, who will be a liar and a deceiver par excellence. Where did that come from? Where did he learn that? Could it be, and we don't know this for sure, but could it be that he heard about what grandpa did? He heard about what dad did? I don't know, but this is what I do know. Sin always affects more than you and me. And in this me-centric culture that we live in, we tend to think about life through the lens of what's best for me or what impacts me or what do I want to do. But the reality is your sin, my sin, always has greater consequences than just the here and now and just you and me. And therefore, we should take it seriously. It never is just about you. But please don't miss the reality of this. There is an amazing message in this that we cannot miss, and it's this, that God accomplishes his purpose in the face of broken choices and circumstances. Somehow, through these incredible broken decisions that Abraham makes, God gets his way. Do you see what's happened here? Despite Abraham, look what happens to him. He gets Sarah back. He gets land, land rights, were like gold in that culture. In fact, you measured your wealth by land and livestock. And what does he get? He gets land. He can live wherever he wants in the land. And he gets livestock. If that's not enough, 
He also gets a lot of money. A thousand shekels was quite a bit of money. And that was way over the top in terms of restitution. And if that's not enough, if we cheat a little bit, and we fast forward to the next chapter, he also gets a well out of this. And water rights were everything. That was like liquid gold back in that day and age. In an arid climate where water is everything to have your own well, I mean, if that wasn't enough, God has this all unroll and unfold in such a way that Abraham is now elevated in the eyes of this king and his court by the blessing God gives him through them. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing because God blesses him despite his brokenness, not because of it. And I struggled with how to say this. Let's, let's work our way through this so we're on the same page. Few of us would say this. I don't know that I know anyone would say, yeah, God blesses me because of my sin. But we live like it sometimes. Our actions reveal that we sometimes think like this. Again, let's go back to Abraham. What motivated him to do this? Could it be that he thought about what happened in Egypt and reasoned to himself, man, that probably wasn't best, but it it worked out okay. I mean, look how wealthy I became. I got Sarah back. Nothing happened. And I left there far better than when I came there. I mean, we don't know that, and probably not. But this is what we do know. Scripture doesn't record anywhere where he did this again. Could it be that he learned his lesson? In my opinion, I choose to think that he did. I think he learned his lesson this time. To trust and obey God in this way in the future Because God's grace is never a license to continue to sin. It is always the escape from it. And sometimes in our heart of hearts, when we don't get caught, when we get away with something, when it all kind of works out, we can be tempted to pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, it wasn't that bad. And what we're doing at that point is we're abusing God's grace. God's grace is the escape from sin, not a license to continue to repeat it. In Romans chapter two in the New Testament, it says this, God's kindness leads you to the place where you pat yourself on the back for your brokenness. No. God's kindness leads you to repentance, to turn away from your brokenness, to not repeat it, and to trust God for something better. My friends, are you abusing God's grace in your life this morning? Is God giving you a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance with some brokenness in your life and are you responding to it or are you just thinking to yourself, "Eh, well, worked the first time. This God is the God of second chances and this is a pretty dramatic example of that. This first came out in 2010 in the New York Daily News. Some of you may have heard about this because it's pretty remarkable when it happens. So it's written in first person, so it sounds like it was written yesterday, but this was from 2010. A New York City man plunged 40 stories from the rooftop of an apartment building and survived after crashing into a car. Witnesses and police say 22-year-old Thomas McGill jumped from a high-rise at West 33rd Street on Tuesday. He landed in the backseat area of a Dodge Charger after crashing through the windshield. And I have seen the picture and it's 
remarkable. He suffered broken legs, and police say he's in critical condition, and he fully recovered, by the way. He came down feet first at like 100 miles an hour, said witness Andrew Predicelli, 47, a maintenance worker who was across the street from where McGill jumped. That's a miracle if I've ever seen one. He should be a goner. It was like that movie, Unbreakable. This guy's unbreakable. Guy McCormick, 40, of Old Bridge, New Jersey, owner of the crushed Charger, was doing construction work across the street when his car broke McGill's fall. He believes that McGill survived on the wings of divine intervention. You think? I looked for the follow-up to that story. After all, that was nine years ago. I can't find anything. And my hope is that it's because the story is still being written. That David McGill realized that he had miraculously been given a second chance. And my hope is that he's making the most of it. But this is what I do know. And worship team, you can come forward. That the God who gives people like David McGill a second chance is a God who gives people like me a second chance. And people like you. All people. This is the God who wants all people to know him and to love him and to be in a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. This is the God who blesses us despite our brokenness, not because of it, because he's trying to help us understand that he really can be trusted and obeyed and that his way is always better than ours. Even when his way doesn't make sense, even when his way plays to our deepest fears, even when his way doesn't look like it's the same way for other people but it's what he's calling us to. It's always, always the path of blessing when we choose to trust and obey this amazing God. And the hope of the gospel is that every day is a new day in Jesus Christ. Every single day is a second chance. The real question is, what are you and I gonna do with it? Will we choose to trust and obey? So I'd like to pray God's blessing over you and as we sing these words, I wanna encourage you to really think about what you're singing because what we're singing is reality and what we're singing is hope. Lord, thank you that you are the God who calls us away from brokenness but even more than that, you rescue us from it through your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. You give us your presence and your power and your promises to live the very life we were created to live, a life that trusts and obeys you and reaps the blessings of that as a result. So God, help us to re-anchor ourselves to that reality here this morning. And Lord, if there's someone here or someone who's listening who does not know you or isn't sure if they know you as their Lord and Savior, God, would they invite you into their lives right now and ask you to be with them. And God, would we sing together the reality of this hope that is ours to have. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Oh, it's beautiful. And God's people doing life in community is beautiful and powerful and real as well. Because we discover this God that way. We discover him together. And we want to encourage you. If there's anything we can be praying for you about, we have our prayer teams up here. We would love to pray with you about whatever's in front of you right now. And I want to send you out with a blessing that literally has been prayed over God's people for thousands of years. This is found in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. Let these words wash over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our peace because of your presence and your promises in our lives. Lord, would we anchor ourselves to you and to those. And as we go from here, would we do so in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you. We love you. You are the one true God. And we are your people. And we pray this in your name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So go and live for him. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.